Our New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, by the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold and another 60, and another 30. The word of the Lord. Good morning, One Ancient Hope. My name is Chris Sutton. If you're visiting here today, my name is Chris Sutton. I'm an elder here at One Ancient Hope. I'm a software developer by day, and I uh, garden a fair amount as well. That'll factor into this sermon. Uh, also, I'm preaching from this lectern instead of there just because of the height difference, and this works better for my height, so if you're wondering why I switched over here. Um, I'm preaching this week. There's another guest speaker speaking next week, and then Pastor Will will be back at it in, uh, after that. So 
Um, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Have you ever suddenly had your eyes opened to the reality around you? We're going to start by talking about Bathsheba, David, and Nathan to see how David's eyes were opened after hearing Nathan's parable. Then we'll talk about how parables work, since this is the lead parable in, in the book of Matthew. And then we'll walk through the four different types of soil in this particular parable. And we'll finish with Jesus loving and calling his people. In 2 Samuel, we learn about David forcibly taking a married woman, Bathsheba, sleeping with her and fathering a child. David commits adultery here. He then has one of his trusted soldiers, who happens to be his neighbor, murdered on the front line to help cover up his actions. He certainly coveted his neighbor's wife. The, then the coveting led to him stealing his neighbor's wife. He gave false testimony to Joab through his messenger. He didn't bear God's name well. Worse yet, he doesn't even invoke God in that particular story. This certainly was not honoring to his father or to his mother. Maybe he didn't violate the Sabbath, and he didn't make an image for worship, but in, in a sense, he was worshiping another god, gods of lust, power, selfishness, violence, deceit. This is an epic moral failing. He had 10 commandments to work with, and he's violated at least eight of them. So it broke God's instruction in fundamental ways. And by acting in this way, he was causing destruction, death, pain, and fracturing of relationships. Pastor Will has preached through the life of Jacob, and that was pretty messy in spots. But this rivals or exceeds it. In the New Testament, Jesus summed up the law in Matthew 22 by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And you hear the, Shema, the great Shema in there from the Old Testament. So in Jesus' interpretation of the law, David failed heavily on both accounts of loving God and loving his neighbors. He wasn't living properly in God's good world. Worse yet, he was the representative head of his nation and he was supposed to represent God to his people. And he was supposed to be following God's instruction so that uh, his kingdom would thrive and grow and have goodness in the land. But this is how sin works. One violation frequently leads to a cluster of violations. It spreads, it infects, it snowballs into worse effects. And without intervention, it's an echo of the original sin where Adam and Eve decided to distrust their creator and to take control of their situation, and to take what they considered to be good apart from what God said was good. As Sir Walter Scott put it in Marmion, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. One sin leads to another, and so on and so forth. So we need intervention. We need a fresh way of seeing our condition so that this web of sin doesn't grow and spread, and so it doesn't have the last word. 
David wasn't in the right place for someone to reason with him directly about his failing. He had all of the power in the kingdom, and he was taking what he wanted on his own terms. Intellectually, he had to have known what the right thing to do was, but his heart and his mind and his will were poisoned as this situation unfolded. In the Bible, one of the ways that this intervention happens is through stories that come alongside the story at hand. So the story at hand is David and Bathsheba, and then Nathan is going to have another story that helps helps people to understand what's happening better. So this story or this parable gives the listener a bit of distance from their current situation. It uses common everyday objects and situations, and it pushes the listener to believe and to act differently. So consider Nathan's parable to David after this situation. This is from 2 Samuel. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and another poor. The rich man had very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children, it shared his food, it drank from his cup, it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against this man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing, and he had no pity. Then then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Nathan is appealing to David in a way where David can still reason about his sin, because The story sounds like someone else's situation. David is distanced from the situation, but you can see the parallels between the stories. And once David has issued his judgment of this, the man who did this must die, then the work has mostly been done. His eyes have been opened where they had been blind. His ears are finally hearing where they had been deaf. His heart is now understanding where it had been hard and shallow and divided, as Tim Keller puts it. You are the man, finishes the work of breaking David down and letting him see with fresh and new eyes. The you here is important, as in you are the man. With most any parable, if you are hearing it, it's for you to help you break down the hard or shallow or divided heart that's blinding you, that's leaving you in your sin, and in your misery. Now this story does its work by the power of the Spirit working in David, by Nathan speaking, and by David hearing Nathan's words. Because David is able to call on the name of the Lord after this. In Psalm 51, uh, which is his confession after this whole situation, a little bit of it says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If you read the rest of Psalm 51, notice 
that he doesn't make light of his sin. He doesn't deflect it and project it onto someone else. He doesn't blame anyone else. He doesn't say it's not a big deal. He sees his sin before a holy God and takes responsibility and asks for forgiveness, and he repents in this moment. Christians around the world use Psalm 51 for confession 3,000 years later, and they do this on a regular basis. This is a parable having its desired effect. The spoken word intends to do work in the world, and this is an excellent example. So some quick words about what a parable is, since this is the lead parable and there's going to be a series of other parables. So what is a parable? I'm drawing uh, a lot from a scholar named Klein Snodgrass uh, for much of what I'm saying. As we saw clearly in David's situation, it's a short story or illustration that intends to unveil some truth. It distances the listener a lot of times from their current circumstances, and it hopefully gives the listener new eyes and ears to affect a change in the listener's beliefs and actions. It's told with familiar objects and in familiar settings so that the audience can easily relate to the story. For example, a modern parable for an audience in Iowa City could be told with professors instructing students. <clears throat> it could have corn and soy fields, a school, a university, deer, raccoons, squirrels, rivers, maybe hot summers, cold winters, it's just common everyday things that people could relate to easily. You can map some of the characters and objects onto real people and local objects, but the point isn't to map every last object and person onto something. The key ones are important, though. Beyond that, it's a form of indirect communication, just meaning that it's not direct propositions like, you shouldn't do this. It's talking more indirectly. Um, Sometimes it's an allegory, sometimes it's a simile, sometimes it's a proverb or a fable, and at times it has very little narrative. Sometimes the stories have narrative, some of them are pretty, pretty uh, lacking in narrative, and that's okay, they're all part of the same, same basic structure. A parable in the Bible is actually hard to categorize. Uh, it's easier to say that it's a story that intends to get the listener to see things with fresh eyes, or to believe and act in new and different ways. It tries to correct a person's understanding about their life, and it may bring about repentance. Starting in Matthew 13, there are seven parables, which is a deliberate move by Matthew. It's a deliberate number, I should say. These parables talk about the kingdom of God. Patrick Schreiner points out that they address how we respond to the kingdom, these seven in particular. They address how we respond to the kingdom, how the kingdom grows, and then they talk about the worthwhile pursuit of the kingdom because of the value of the kingdom. Also, these are kingdoms that convey wisdoms that are almost a kind of wisdom literature. So let's, uh, let's kind of shift over towards this particular parable. In the parable of the sower, we are considering the sower sending out his word, in this case, planting the seed or casting the seed. And the focus is mainly looking at our reception of this message as it is proclaimed and it goes out into the world. This parable of the sower helps us step back and to consider how we've responded to the kingdom of God. It pushes us to consider if we are good soil or bad soil or something in between. Its interpretation isn't shocking on the surface, but as you stay with the story, the question of what kind of soil am I gets 
asked louder, and it examines your heart, and it starts to expose you. And you are left with some questions that can push on your sensibilities as you consider your life. So many in the New Testament thought that they understood what kind of kingdom this was, the kingdom that Jesus was bringing, but they rarely got it right. This isn't much different than our world today. A prime error of that day was to believe that Jesus came to usher in a political and military revolution. If this is how you think the kingdom of God comes to us, then how you receive good news is going to be a lot different than if you think the kingdom is like a sower with a seed. It's counterintuitive. It grow, it's a growth that spreads slowly, but the part but the part that is good soil produces a large and productive harvest. Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So this teaching is not here to put an unbearable burden on you. Instead, it's to get you to stop from your busyness, to listen to the word, and to evaluate what you've been chasing, to repent, to move you toward being a healthy and good kingdom citizen. Hearing and doing is a pattern that is all through the Bible. I... In scripture, hearing is usually, usually implies understanding and doing. So hearing is a cognitive faculty that's sort of adjacent to the heart in the Bible. And it doesn't just mean letting, uh, letting words or airwaves hit your ear. It means taking that, understanding it, perceiving it, and doing something with it, assuming it's the truth. We've already considered what to do when someone says, fire at 5.45 in the morning. You act, and you act now. It has an immediate implication on your life and on your property. What happens when someone warns you about your beliefs, or your behavior, or how you are treating your neighbor? The short-term consequences in this later case may not be as immediate as the fire, but the long-term consequences are higher. When you hear the words of your trusted friend or brother or sister in Christ, do you hear them? Do you hear their words and understand them in a way that causes you to act and change your beliefs, your behavior, or maybe your associations? So let's talk about the four scenarios in the parable now. The parable of the sower, where the good news or the seed of the kingdom is given to the people, and they respond in four different ways. So let's consider the first type of soil, the hard-packed path. The hard-packed soil in the form of a, a path or a trail. If you garden much, you know that the condition of your soil is one really important part of plant life succeeding and producing well. There are soil scientists who can give you mind-numbing details about all of the components and types of microbial and fungal life that you need, uh, that you need for good soil to produce plants and to grow and to thrive. But if soil is packed hard, even the average person knows that it'll, it'll tend to be hostile to plant life. A modern paved road that is made of gravel, rock, asphalt, or concrete takes this to another level, but a hard packed path doesn't give the conditions needed for plants to grow at all. You might get some weeds coming up or something in the cracks, but you're not going to get productive life coming out of it. The parable is talking about a type of person who hears the good news and it has no effect on their life. Actually, this type of soil also introduces the evil one, the one who comes along and actively takes the seed or the message away from the heart of this person. 
the seed hasn't put down roots. It has, so it can just come and it can be taken away very easily. That soil is packed and hard. The person can audibly hear the words, but, the hearing but their hearing capacity along with their heart, their will, their intellect, their emotion, doesn't process it and understand it, and it doesn't affect this person's life. Not many people will mistake this person for one who has put their trust in Christ. We pray and we look for the Spirit to soften these hardened hearts. But the Word that has no, <clears throat> but the Word has no soil to flourish in. These conditions are exceedingly poor for life, and the evil one has his way by stealing the message. Before we think of others who may be in this place, let's be honest and admit that we've probably been here before in this place with hard hearts that can't receive, that can't listen, that can't understand. We were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and we were bought at a great price. So let's consider the second type of soil, the thin soil on rocky ground. Some years ago, I was, work, I was helping some friends fix up their garden bed. So we were digging it up, and as I was digging, I found that about 10 inches down, there was a plastic sheet that was acting as a barrier. People probably did it with good intentions to block weeds or something like that. But any, plant, uh, any plants with a deep root structure would hit that barrier, and they would never be able to get down to the needed minerals that they need and other elements down below. In this garden, the plants will grow, but they are likely going to be de somewhat deficient unless you are manually adding all of the nutrients and fertilizers that you need for that particular garden. So now imagine a worse scenario where your soil is primarily rocks with a bit of soil on top of it. Um, think about the Devonian Fossil Gorge. You've been out there before, probably, hopefully. If you haven't, you should go out there and check it out. Um, it's out by the Coralville Dam. It's mainly rock because the water's washed away all of the topsoil. And there is some soil in the cracks, and there's some thin places on top. Uh, there's some soil on top in places. It produces life, but it's meager plant life compared to the rich soil in our area. And we have some of the most spectacular soil in the world all around us here. Nobody would try to grow carrots in the fossil gorge. The carrot seeds that land on a bit of soil will probably germinate just a little bit, but the root structure will have nowhere to go. Any plants, actually, any, all plants have roots, and they just they have nowhere to go. And when hard, so when hard times come for the plants, it'd be drought and lots of hot sun or maybe too much rain. Uh, the plants won't have the root structure to hold them in place and to give them life and they won't be able to withstand these troubles. Thin amounts of organic matter on top of rocks also doesn't hold water. So once the spring rains are gone, the soil doesn't have the ability to provide water between the rains. It can't sustain that life anymore. So you see what the parable describes as immediately they sprang up, but then the plant can't develop properly to the point of producing fruit or vegetables or good leaves or roots for eating. Not many people confuse this person with an active disciple. The initial positive effects are short-lived and no fruit is likely produced. Have you been here? Maybe you are here? Let's talk about the third kind of soil. 
the thorns that choke out the plants. I've planted a larger garden in the last four years, and weeds have been my bane. Uh, I confess this in front of the church. Some of the plants that I've weeded well have thrived and produced excellent harvests. But when I've let down my guard around weeding, bad things happen. If you've planted anything, even if you've planted in a pot, you'll know that weeds pop up all through just in a, a, a container planting. There are certain weeks in May and June that are critical, and if you don't weed for a two-week period, you've severely reduced your crop. You may not have lost it, but the cost is so much higher to try to reclaim the garden at that point. Thread stage weeds are these little weeds. They're really weak, and you can take and you can remove the weeds really easily when they're in thread stage. Not a big deal. But once they thicken and they put down roots, then if you have a hoe, it's that much harder to, you know, to break up those weeds. And once they really put down their roots and they get a hard, thick stem, you're, you're kind of in trouble at that point, and the cost just goes through the roof to, to try to reclaim your garden. They're so much harder to deal with. If you're planting a couple hundred square feet or a couple thousand square feet, then the problem just magnifies. Um, I'm saying this because this weed situation has been my experience. This, I'm not pointing at other people's gardens that I saw. This is, this is my garden. Um, I've been in some really, I've had some really well-tended crops, and I have made sure to take pictures of those and put them on social media. The weedy times, and there have been some really, really bad weed things where I've lost whole sections of the garden, I don't show anyone those pictures because uh, that's, you know, the, the plants are not achieving their, their intended uh, plan. They're not producing fruit and they're getting overgrown and it's frankly kind of embarrassing. I wouldn't want anyone to see that. Uh, so there have been times where I've lost whole sections of the garden because I was on vacation and I missed those weeks or a couple of years ago, I broke my wrist, and that kind of that set back a certain amount of work. Or there were times where I was just lazy, and in May and June, I didn't go out on the proper evenings and take care of those weeds once they were at thread stage. And, uh, and then for those parts of the garden, that was kind of disaster. The weeds block the light. They crowd the physical airspace. And some weeds will use the critical nutrients in the soil and in, in the minerals that the plants actually need. So it'll take away the elements that the plants need to grow. Um, and then the roots from the weeds can actually crowd out and destroy root vegetables and stuff like that as well. I'd contend that many of us are actively in this kind of a place where the cares and concerns of the world are distracting us from our ability to... Um, to walk closely with God and to listen to his instruction. The parable's interpretation talks about the cares of the world. And I'm going to talk about it in terms of our attention, our focus, our time, and our joy here. Pause and think about what holds your, your attention over the course of your day. What do you focus on? Where is your time spent? What gives you joy? I'm not talking about your six to eight hours that you may spend on your main job or in your studies or caring for children. I'm talking about what you do in between all those times. When you get a little bit of downtime, what do you do with that space? And this is kind of a long list. This is not an exhaustive list, but 
Do you immediately fill it with maybe another hour of work because someone emailed you from work? Do you go to texting? Do you go to Netflix, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Pokemon Go, Snapchat, reading, uh, reading newspapers, maybe watching sports, watching news, maybe going to news websites, forums, email lists, Substack articles, computer games, mobile games, videos on YouTube, podcasts, audiobooks. Maybe you have 20 tabs open in your browser. Maybe you have 50 tabs open on your browser. Uh, maybe you're just looking at your phone again. And the list goes on and on. And this is not exhaustive. You have your own particular distractions. So mentally fill in the gaps there. It would be too long of a list if I tried to go everywhere. By the way, a lot of these things are things that I have tried in the past. So I'm saying this from experience. I'm not looking at other people for that one. When you wake up early or in the middle of the night, do you go and you scan all the news websites? Or do you check social media? Or do you watch a show or a movie? We can all point out great stories on Netflix, good authors and content on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or good news websites. You can read good literary or scientific articles. What I'm concerned about here is the sheer volume of attractive options to pull our attention from a, sim a simple, humble life walking before God and loving our neighbors. We have no lack of distractions from what we are called to do. And actually, the modern world is actually fine-tuning and making distractions that keenly play off of our human weaknesses. They're actually doing this. It's called gamification and social... Uh, all kinds of scientists go into building games and social media to make it as addictive as possible for you. That's why there's so much outrage in social media and things like that. That's why that gets promoted to the front. Uh, T.S. Eliot in The Four Quartets talks about our human condition. And I think he captures it well when he says, we're distracted from distraction by distraction. We're filled with fancies and empty of meaning. Tumid apathy with no concentration. What are these distractions taking from you? Are you afraid that that 10 or 30 minutes of being alone, <clears throat> are you afraid of that 10 or 30 minutes of being alone so you pull your phone out and you look at it again? Maybe you've developed a habit that drives you to fill your downtime with more activity where you don't want to be alone or serving your neighbor. James 1 talks about looking intently into the perfect law, but instead we look intently into our phones for the hundredth time today. This is killing our ability to give our attention to what deserves it. We can't focus on what's important. Our time tends to go to very short-term goods, and our joy dries up because this distraction doesn't make us happy in the end. And we know it doesn't make us happy. But we keep doing it. These thorns are killing our ability to see, to hear, to understand, and to do the word. Are you in this place? And I'll ask you again, what kind of soil are you? Let's talk about the fourth type of soil, the good soil. A couple of weeks ago, I was at one of the cedar orchards in our county. There's about 14,000 trees on the orchard. 
and it's all geared towards cider production. If you've had Wilson's cider, you've probably benefited from the juice that's produced at this other cider orchard. These trees are planted in excellent soil for apples. They are well tended. The orchardist is amazing at his work. It's a beautiful orchard. They, uh, he has fenced out the deer so that they don't eat the plants and eat the apples, which the deer love. And hence, they don't get to destroy the trees. At the same time, these trees are resilient. Their roots can grow deep. They have water and they have sun. They've made it through the derecho. They've lived through drought that would have killed off poorly rooted trees. They've lived through periods where the soil was too water saturated for an extended period. They've lived through unexpected freezes. Two years ago, they produced a bit of fruit. It's a young orchard. But this year, as they gr grow closer to their capacity, they're producing several thousand gallons of apple cider or apple juice for cider. At full capacity, it'll be around 20,000 gallons of apple juice. And that's a good thing. It's good for human consumption. And uh, people, people enjoy the hard and the soft forms of the cider. So it's something that's produced for human benefit. So this year, I was picking fruit at the orchard about a, a couple weeks ago. And I spent almost 10 minutes. So these are semi-dwarf trees. So they're not like full size, but they're not the small ones. They're kind of in between size. And I was picking underneath. Uh, two of the trees and it took me about 10 minutes just to pick the base of two of these trees and it's just this spectacular harvest and when you see that kind of harvest uh, you know that the orchardist has done his work and the soil has done its work and all of the elements have worked together to, to produce excellent fruit this is the type of par this is the type of harvest that the parable describes a harvest multiplied by 100 times or 60 times or 30 times over. People have different levels of ability in the kingdom, and we're called to be responsible for the gifts that we've been given. Galatians says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are words that have become too familiar, but they describe the type of humble life that's produced when one hears the word and does it. It's a lifelong process of being formed into Christ's likeness. So then the question is, hear what? What should we be listening to? And there are multiple sources of good truth, but I would suggest a good starting point is, here on Sunday morning, pay attention to the liturgy at One Ancient Hope. It's really, it's carefully chosen every single week by Matthew and Will and different people who are, who are preparing for, this, for, uh, for the service. Um, the music, the readings, the sermon, the confession, the assurance of pardon, the profession of faith, the benediction, we are rehearsing the gospel each week. We're saying it over and over because we know that our hearing is poor and that we need to hear the word of God yet again this week. So one starting point is I'd encourage you to listen carefully to the service. And when you hear something that, affects, that could affect your life, uh, go and talk with a friend and examine how you could put that particular um, instruction or command into practice. 
In the closing section here, I want to go back to the, close, uh, the, 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 be, the very beginning of the parable. You may hear this teaching knowing that your lack of ability to properly hear, that to, you may hear this teaching knowing your lack of ability to properly hear what Jesus says. But Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. These three soils can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They can't, by the power of their wills, remove the rocks and the thorns. This is a bigger process of sanctification. We need serious help because the problem is serious. So back up at the start of the parable, we have that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered around him so that they got in so that he got into a boat and he sat down and the whole crowd stood at the beach and he told them many things in parables. Jesus had already had a full day before he started his teaching. But this same day he goes down to the beach and he sits down to rest. Maybe he's worn down. Maybe, he's, maybe he just wants to hear the waves at the seaside. But the people find him and they crowd around him. So here is the eternal son of God in the flesh with his precious creatures all around him, wanting to hear more from Jesus and to be in his presence. He gets in a boat and he goes out over the sea and he sits down for a second time in the boat. And he starts to tell these parables, starting with the sower. The act of sitting in the Bible is frequently demonstrating someone who's at rest. Sometimes that person is conducting business Many times it's someone in authority, like in the Old Testament, elders sitting at the city gate. And at other times, it's an image of a king in authority over his kingdom. Think of the phrase, sitting at the right hand of someone that's used in the Bible. All of these images work in this case, but consider Genesis 1. The Father speaks his word into creation. And by the way, his speaking and his acting are one thing here. The Father speaks his word into creation, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters or over the surface of the deep. And here in Matthew, the Son in the flesh is sitting over the waters in authority over the chaos with a host of his creatures around him hearing his words and hearing his teaching. He's all-powerful. And at the same time, he's present and he's interacting with his creation. Even more, he's holding all things together. My point is that you're not alone in this walk. We hear authority negatively much of the time, but having the right person in authority is a good thing. Jesus in authority is a real good thing for all of us. Like it says in Isaiah 43, he who formed and made you for his glory. He wants the very best for you, and his teaching pushes us toward his best and, his, and a flourishing life. Also, you have brothers and sisters. You have parents. You have children all around you. I'm not speaking of these relations in terms of biology, but in terms of belief. The people around you who believe in Christ and follow his instructions are your brothers, your sisters, mothers, fathers, sons and daughters. This is the new family that God is building up for his kingdom. Your faith, your trust that Jesus is the true son of God, is not a solo project. You were meant to live in community. 
If you are struggling to believe, ask for help. Take a risk and ask someone in your community group or someone at church to talk with you. Ask Jesus to help you in your unbelief, like the Father in Mark 9. I believe, help my unbelief. If you are concerned about your lack of belief, then you aren't that hard-packed soil that is such hostile soil to the word of God. If you are a deeply distracted person with so many modern distractions screaming for your attention, and you have built patterns in your life where you focus on these things, ask God for his help. And then go and talk with someone at church. These habitual distractions are addiction in the modern sense and idolatry in the Bible's terminology. I've put way too much weight on social media at times. And while it has its uses, it has not led me to life, to flourishing. Talking with several people at church has actually helped me use social media less and some of the other distractions that we talked about. God is building up a household of family members who can help you, the mothers, brothers, sisters, children, fathers, and sons and daughters. Remember the compassion and the hope that you heard in Isaiah 43 in the Old Testament reading. This is after chapters 1 through 39, which speak much, much harder truths to the people of Israel. The one who created and formed you has bought your life. He knows your name, and he has claimed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, bringing my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. Look at that last verse. He makes the dead alive, the blind to see, and the deaf to hear. Your situation is not beyond him. Remember that he made you and he formed you. How do we know that we can believe this? Belief is a matter of trust and trust is a matter of faith. And we know that we can trust him because of what he has done for us. On Jesus' walk to Golgotha, he undoubtedly had to walk down a rocky, hard-packed path as he carried his cross toward his crucifixion. He was stripped of much of the clothing that he had, so he likely didn't have sandals on. He walked that road for us so we wouldn't have to. Even more, those thorns that choke out the life of his creatures in that third type of soil are not the last word. Jesus took those thorns into his very body. They were pressed into his head. And up on the cross, Jesus took up a throne that no one imagined. A cross with a banner declaring, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It was meant to mock, but instead it declared a deep and ancient reality of creation. It's a truth that makes it worthwhile to take stock of our lives, to see, to hear the message, to understand the word of God, and to live it out. He is the King of creation during creation in Genesis 1. He is the king sitting in a boat, teaching his followers in Matthew 13. And he is, the, he is the king up on the cross, 
walking on that rocky ground and receiving the crown of thorns in Matthew 27. Whoever has ears, let them hear Jesus. See him, hear his words, understand his message, and do Jesus' commands because he's worth it. Father, by your spirit, help us to hear your word. Help us to be hearers and doers.